What is up, everybody? It is Thursday, February 15th, and this is Rafael Garcia back for another edition of the MMA Ratings Podcast. I can't talk again tonight, but as always, I'm here with my partner in crime, Shawan Humes, world, the world's greatest dad. How you doing there, sir? Uh, tired. Just got done giving a lecture. <laughs> oh, Lord. what you had to give a lecture on? Who did it? Uh, just had getting the kids on a understanding that sometimes you have to do things you don't want to do to get to the places you want to go because everybody talks about you know i want to do this i want to do that but in the real world the people who are the most successful people are the people who can do things they don't want to do and do them well man if you ain't speaking truth to my life right now because that is um that's a god honest fact right there you're going to do some shit that you don't want to do and that's called every day it happens every day of the week so you're definitely 100 percent right about that um, so let's go ahead and jump into it, man. We got a hell of a lot to talk about because we were not here last week. Um, was a little busy with Swamp with some things at work. So let's go ahead and jump right into it, man. Um, huh, work, I want to start actually with some news we didn't get to discuss last week. And Frankie Edgar and Brian Ortega are now fighting at UFC uh, 220, along with Chris Cyborg uh, defending her featherweight title against um, Kusakaya. So let's look at these two fights, man. What are what are some initial thoughts when you saw both of these two fights? And do you think this is a a viable replacement for losing Max Holloway off of the card? There, Schwan, you there? Oh well, let's try this again. Give me one second, folks. Sorry about that. Alright, so I just sent them another invite. But yeah, I definitely want to talk about this fight. I was, for one, was looking forward to the Holloway Edgar card. I believe everyone was because Edgar's just that guy. He's that veteran who will not go away. I think he is 35 years old, about to turn 36, and he just keeps doing what he needs to do to put guys out. Uh, Shwan, you there? Yeah, I'm back. Okay, cool. So um, turn off your camera for me. So we're talking about. Um, we're talking about. Ortega versus Edgar as an, as a new bout on UFC 222. And do you think this is a viable replacement for Max Holloway being forced off the card due to injury? Uh, as far as as far as popularity, Max has been picking up popularity, so probably not in that instance. As far as the best fight, it's the second best fight you can make in division. Uh, Ortega is a guy uh, people wanted to see fight Holloway. Edgar's a guy people wanted to see ho- fight Holloway. So you got the two closest contenders to Holloway's title fighting to become the definite challenger to the fight the title because whoever wins this fight there's no argument that they're the next they're the next challenger because they would have beaten the number two or number three guy in division either way it goes so as far as the quality of the fight and uh, the excitement then yeah it, it's it's a it's a good replacement I don't know if it's going to come off as well because Max had started to gain momentum as a popular fighter like he's been talking recently and kind of getting out in front of the cameras and, and making appearances. So I don't know if it'll have that kind of impact. But as far as the quality of fight, it, it's more than good enough. 
Yeah, and I definitely agree with you there because he is, and I like how he's talking. He's not out here trash talking like a um, Conor McGregor or Luke Rockhold or one of these other fools. He's basically letting everybody know, hey, I'm going to fight whoever gets in my way and keep doing the damn thing. Like I'm just a man picking up my picking up my lunch pail and coming to work every day. And work involves me beating people up every single day. And you gotta uh, appreciate that because he's down. He's, he's down to fight whoever. A sweet spot, if you think about it. Yeah, he definitely is because he's down to fight whoever whenever it's needed. And that's kind of what the UFC needs. They, they need a champion that they can rely on in that way to continue being that way. And, and um, I mean, he's, he's, he's making a name for himself and he's making some fans. Yeah, he's in the spot because, he, he, like he said, he's not like Rockhold or Conor McGregor talking trash because, A, most guys aren't good at it to do it, and, B, it gets old, especially when you're not fighting. And even though I'm a fan of Tyron Woodley, he's a guy who he doesn't care who he's defending his title against, money fight or not, he just wants to fight. So he's right in that spot where he where he's going to have a lot of fans coming over to him because here's a guy who's not saying money fight, he's just like, put another guy in front of me, and here's a guy who's not holding out for more money or talking trash about he runs a division, he's going out to prove that he runs a division. So he's right in that spot that, unfortunately, you know, for fans who aren't as invested or aren't as educated about what goes on behind the scenes, that's a, that's the kind of fighter they like, and that's the kind of fighter that the company likes. And to be quite honest, this might be a wake-up call for other people in the UFC. If you keep on fighting, and you keep on making yourself available, and you keep on winning, you, you'll start getting some of that attention. It may not be Conor McGregor level, but you'll start getting some of that attention and some of that fan support that it forces them to have to pay you. Yeah, we're going to talk about Tyron Willie definitely later on in the show because, as always, him and Dana White are going back and forth at it again. Um, but I am a fan of Max Holloway. I think he's someone that the organization can build around uh, for the future long term as well um and he as long as he stays healthy you know he's had some injury problems in the past i hope that he can remain healthy can remain victorious and, and just remain active and keep pushing uh contenders back because if he does that and you know with the ufc looking to do an event in hawaii sometime this year i mean there's an opportunity to have him featured front and center for um the world to see so hopefully that is something that they can kind of leverage and he he does his part like we were saying the last time we were on the air and um I think you, Mike, and I were talking about this on Twitter a couple of days back. But as long like the idea should be that the UFC is going to be willing to do X, and the fighters' part is to do Y. And Y is always to go in there and compete and compete at a high level and just not be a douchebag outside the cage. Holloway can do both of those those things, and as long as the UFC does their part and gives him the proper platform to become a superstar, he has that uh, he has that potential standing right in front of him. I mean, he's, he, he's poised. He, he, he's got the winning streak. He's got the skills. He's got the belt. It's really all set up for him to go to that next level of, uh, of crossover, becoming a crossover star. And what do you think about Ortega and uh, Edgar from a technical standpoint? I've been listening to a lot of people, and a lot of people are picking Edgar in this fight, and I can see the, the reasoning why. But what are your thoughts about these two um, in this fight? I think Edgar can win. The, the best advice I would give to Edgar is to fight the same way he fought Jose Aldo. And what I mean by that is fight Ortega like you can't get a takedown on him. Like make it a boxing match, make it a, make it a matter of movement, footwork, timing, activity, and an actual legitimate skill on the feet. Because Ortega's got some athletic talent. He hits fairly hard. He's getting better as a striker. He's not, he's not as seasoned. He's not as savvy. He's not as technical as Frankie is at this point. 
but he has some athleticism. He's willing to engage. He's willing to take some to get some, and he's improved a little bit, little by little, as far as the tightness and the placement and the uh, the philosophy behind the punches. He's not just throwing them mindlessly. He's trying to set things up. He's trying to create other opportunities. Edgar's biggest risk is him getting in some kind of exchange of any sort, grappling on the feet or on the ground via a stuffed takedown or a sprawled out takedown, or even if he does complete a takedown. Ortega's excels in the ability of finding submissions from any position once he gets involved in a grappling exchange with you, when he can get his hands on you for a prolonged period of time. And for him, a prolonged period of time could be a second and a half. So my whole thing would be for Frankie to dart in and out, circle, keep turning him, walk in the shot, walk him in the shot, and basically overwhelm him with work rate, footwork, and um, and uh, head and body attacks. I don't think he wants, I mean, I don't think he wants to, he could win grappling exchanges, but anytime he's grappling, he's putting himself at a risk of being finished by Ortega. So my best bet for him would be to be constantly keep it on the feet and transition. If you're going to use a takedown, you're not trying to, like I said, get into an extended grappling exchange. You want to get the takedown, get out. The minute he starts locking something up, you exit, exit with strikes, reset, start all over again. You do not want to get in any position where this guy can get control of a limb, get your head exposed, or has a chance to set up in any sort of position where he can be offensive or counter you from. And I think that's what makes Ortega so dangerous from a grappling standpoint is that he's so aggressive with it. When that, No matter what position he's in, it's as if he knows something that can put his opponent in danger and he immediately goes for it. Um, Cub Swanson was piecing him up on the feet. Uh, clearly, he was piecing him up on the feet. You saw it time and time again. I think even Ortega even shot for a takedown at one point in time because Swanson was catching him. But the minute they began grappling, you saw a swing in the fight where he could have defeated Swanson twice. He had him locked up in the first round, time ran out, and he finished the job in the second. For Edgar, I totally agree with you. I think he needs to stay on his bicep. This is a three-round fight, too, as well, which, you know, we know he's not going to get tired in those um, three rounds. So staying on, on his bike, piecing or Ortega up and just moving, I, I think that's the way to go. Um, using wrestling maybe in a, in a defensive or like a scoring type of type of method would also um, be fine, but I don't think he wants to get into too many prolonged battles on the ground. Exactly. When you, when you say defensive, you're not talking about like, oh, I defended the takedown. Let me get the takedown to him. You're talking about defend, get out, use your strike to create space, and, and reset. Uh-huh. Ortega's just that dangerous, and he's so confident in his submission. That's the difference. Everybody knows submissions can finish a fight, but there's certain fighters who are so confident in their ability to finish, and that's what makes it dangerous. It's like facing a puncher, a guy who really knows he can punch. He's, he's swinging at any time, because any time he touches you, that could be the end of the fight. Ortega's that version of... He's a striking's he's a grappler's version of that of a power punch of a knockout puncher. Anytime you get into an exchange, you could be on the feet grappling with him, you could be defending a takedown halfway, you could almost have him down, and he can snatch something from you. And I know Edgar's a very good grappler, but if you don't have to try your opponent in his area of strength, why would you even think of doing it? Why not just make exactly. it himself? We know that we know that Ortega can't box with him. We know that for a fact. Exactly. And what are your thoughts about the new main event? where we have Cyborg and uh, Kusakaya fighting for the women's uh, featherweight title. Now, I know a lot of people are upset. They're thinking Cyborg's fighting another uh, bloated 
135er. Well, in reality, um, Sakai was actually already scheduled to fight at 145 on this card. She was going to be the first non-title featherweight fight. I don't know who she was scheduled to fight, but she was going to be involved in the first non-title 145-pound uh, bout. So she is going. She she's a featherweight win, lose, or draw in this bout. What are some of your thoughts about this fight here, and um, what do you see when you look at these two women? Well, she's a good fighter, and she's coming. She's working with Jackson Wing, so you know she's going to have at least a uh, very efficient and intelligent plan A. I don't know how far her plan B will go, but I know for the her plan A should be very well tailored because Jackson Wing just got done facing Cyborg, so you sh I'm sure there's things they saw with home face with home face Cyborg, and they they came up they came up with counter. They came up with countermeasures to essentially take away some of the things that Cyborg likes to do. The problem, the problem with this, as far as the public goes, is this girl fought Tanya Evinger twice, and she lost to her and lost decisively to her. And Cyborg didn't kill, didn't kill Evinger, but she outclassed her, outworked her, and beat her up into a stoppage. So, from an optics point of view, it doesn't look like a good fight because you're having Cyborg fight a girl who lost, who was soundly defeated by a girl that Cyborg crushed. But in actuality, um, her opponent is experienced. She won an Invicta title, which means she can't fight. And she wasn't originally, she originally was a featherweight. So it's not like she's gonna be, she's one of these girls who's stepping up. She's going back to her original weight class. And if I recall correctly, she beat Cindy Dandewas by KO. And if Cindy's a limited striker, but if nothing else, Cindy's shown that she's very durable She's very good at forcing the fight into her area, and she's good at finishing when given the opportunity to finish an opponent. And this girl beat Cindy, and Cindy beat the other girl who would be considered a featherweight challenger in Megan Anderson. So if you do the MMA math, it's a little bit more of an impressive fight right now. Basically what they're doing with Cyborg is they're turning her into a version of Ronda Rousey. It doesn't matter who she fights, Cyborg is the show. You're just, you're, all you're hoping for is that whoever she fights puts on a good enough fight that it makes people feel like they didn't, they weren't ripped off. You either want Cyborg to go out and totally destroy her, or you want that girl to put up of enough of a fight where it seems kind of interesting, like kind of how Ronda was when she fought Misha. Misha wasn't really close to beating Ronda, but in the first fight, she pushed Ronda further than she had been before. The second fight, she pushed Ronda even further than she had been before. So people kind of felt like they got their money's worth because Ronda had to work out of a couple spots. Ronda had to take some shots. Ronda got taken down. She got reversed. So UFC is either hoping that Cyborg walks through her completely and kind of goes through as her, her image as a destroyer, or this girl puts up enough of a fight where it adds to the, the legitimacy of the match because it's somewhat competitive for a period of time. Yeah, um, I definitely agree with you there about what they're trying to do with Cyborg. I, I asked this on Twitter right after this fight was announced, and I didn't get, or I, I got varying responses about whether or not this is her last fight on the card because she's been very adamant about leaving to go to Bellator. And it would be very interesting to see if we find ourselves in a position where Cyborg is the women's featherweight champion. She is in contract negotiations. She's willing to fight uh, Amanda Nunez in a super fight, but the UFC has to renegotiate with her. That would be a hell of a negotiation period between all, all the parties involved. And that's something that I think would be pretty compelling to us. See? Well, yeah, and Cyborg can do this because she ha she holds all the cards. She's she's beaten Holly Holm. She's had a rep because of her longevity. She's got a reputation of being this 
She beat Gina Carano on a highly publicized car. She was the b biggest star on Strike Force until Ronda came. And she's been like the boogeyman to every fighter who's been considered the most dominant fighter in women's mixed martial arts. And then she's coming off a very big win over Holly Holm. So she's really got all the cards. They don't really have another girl who has any sort of interest or has a longevity where she has a legitimate fan base built underneath her. Amanda Nunes beat the two most popular women in mixed martial arts history, and people still don't care about Amanda Nunes. Not really. Not the way you would think they would, based off the quality of the wins and the pay-per-view buys on the numbers of the cards that she fought on against those two girls. She still doesn't have much of a fan base. So Cyborg actually has all the cards. Cyborg's the popular fighter. She's the one who's got the reputation. She's the one coming off the win over the uh, over the top name, Vanna Waite, also the girl who stopped Ronda Rousey. So Cyborg can actually force these negotiations because the UFC needs stars, they need wealth, they need pay-per-views to sell, and they need some good publicity on their side that's going to help turn the fan support instead of against them, for them. And I agree with you um, about the transition of fans caring did not occur with Nunez stomping out Rousey and Misha Tate. I put part of the onus though on the UFC for that, and part of that is because of how she's been been portrayed. I mean, she, all of her challengers have been more portrayed, have been more promoted than she has been. And yes, other than Shevchenko, you know, when she fought Tate for the for the title, that 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 was one, and when she fought Rousey. Both of them are bigger names than Nunez probably will ever be. But with Shevchenko, it was just a uh, disproportionate level of promotion between the two. And it will be interesting to see how the UFC treats this upcoming promotion with um, Rocco Pennington and uh, Amanda Nunez because obviously this is the first time, I think it's the first time, it may not be, but you know they're both... Um, lesbian champ, uh, um, athletes and it's this is something that you don't see in the sport i'm not saying it should be paraded around in a uh facetious type of way but that's a talking point that they can help bring additional attention into the uh into the show and it'll be interesting to see if they talk about it i doubt it but that's another opportunity that i think that that they will be missing out on i always feel bad for amanda Nunes to a degree because you're right they don't push her but my whole thing is like let's just say that they focus on amanda Nunes. You focus, if you're a business person, you focus on the per, especially if you're trying to make quick money back. We're not talking about, at that time, they weren't thinking long term. They're trying to get their money back ASAP. If you're having a, you're having a thing like that, if you're a business person, who are you focusing on? Because people are curious. I mean, I can't even blame them to a degree because everybody wants to know about Ronda. I know Amanda Nunes is a very good fighter. She's very talented. But let's face it, all the news wanted to know about Ronda. The reason... Ronda didn't get more publicity is because Ronda refused to do a bunch of interviews. And the same thing with Misha. You're talking about people who've been in the sport and been dominating the sport and multi-organizational champions and people who, who have championed the sport and helped expand the sport. Amanda Nunes, prior to being a champion, hadn't really contributed to any of that. She hadn't, she hadn't been going out talking about the good about women's, martial, women's mixed martial arts. She hadn't broken it across different boundaries. Because even before Ronda got to the UFC, her people, her team, her team of agents and announcers and people were getting her into position and expanding her reach and expanding her name. And Misha Tate, the UFC never really supported Misha Tate. They didn't. They really didn't. Misha Tate kind of builds her own brand by constantly talking, making herself available for interviews, and getting her own team to spread her name and her, her influence across a broader scope. 
Amanda Nunes has been done wrong by the UFC. I admit that. But she's been paid, against those two girls, she was paid very, very well to be overshadowed by those two girls. And secondly, I still don't, nobody has been able to tell me what Amanda Nunes' team in and of themselves has been willing to do to help her get her name out there. Like, nobody's told me anything. I know Ronda's people talk to movies, they get her scripts, they had her doing interviews before she got to the UFC. What has Nunes' people been doing? I feel like, um, I can't remember her girlfriend's name, um, but I do feel like this conversation kind of came up in a sense, and she, um, being Amanda Nunes' girlfriend who also fights in the UFC, was talking talking about men in a way that talking about how shy she is and, and how introverted she is, which I understand. She, <laughs> excuse me, she is learning English and you can tell that through her interviews recently. She's definitely working to learn English. So that is a, a, a positive step. But um, we're, we're just going to have to see, you know, if she holds that title for an extended period of time and, and she keeps doing what she's going to do, like how, how high can she get, especially with the bantamweight division being, barren right now uh there isn't there aren't too many contenders for her to fight and they need her to do something to and, draw and more that's attention a, that's a very good point though that 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 also goes to your point once again she's having to go to somebody else to get that rub to make the money she had to go to ronda to make her highest paycheck she had to fight misha to get her second highest paycheck now she's gonna have to fight she has to get the fight with cyborg cyborg ronda misha did not need nunez to make money and two of those people I know for, and, and Cyborg falls in this too because the UFC has been murdering her character since Ronda was in. And yet she somehow developed a presence of her own, once again, through her own people because the UFC was not doing Cyborg any favors. You can look through interviews for the past five years. They've been murdering her in, in every newscast. Dana, Ronda, everybody. So they had to build their own thing up. They had to develop and expand her reach and do her social media and all that stuff. So while I always feel sorry for, I still, I feel bad. I don't feel sorry for her. I feel bad for Amanda. She might be shy. She's uncomfortable with the language. I get that all the time and I really support it. And I think the UFC has dropped the ball. Do not mistake that. But if you're, if there's, if you like a girl, there's a girl you like and you're too shy to talk to her and somebody isn't and they take her, that, that's kind of on you. I mean, at some point you have to get past that. If you want, like Rhonda and Connor say, everybody wants the money. Everybody wants to push. Nobody wants to get out of their comfort zone. Nobody wants to do the work we do. And I know they speak English, so I know it's a little bit different, but there's some truth to that. There is a lot of truth to what they say in that instance. And I'm not saying the UFC didn't draw the ball. They have. But somebody would have to show me that she had a plan, in a, a plan of attack. And she's been, she's been activating it throughout her career. And it hasn't. She's, since she's become champion, she's done these things. She could have been working on this stuff since day one she started. She did. Rhonda did. Misha did. Cyborgs had a plan to put in place for for years. So, so let's some years to get this point. Let's go. Let's uh, segue from there. Actually, and talk about another champion that's struggling within the UFC, and that's Tyron Woodley. So I think it was last week. Um, news broke about a potential fight between him and Nate Diaz. Uh, I think Woodley was talking about it, and he. I don't know if he was asked or if he brought the cool information out willingly. But UFC President Dana White basically said that um, he's full of shit. He said it a couple times. And and it, it was very adamant that he was upset with the conversations. Um, Woodley obviously got mad at, at the situation, came back at um, Dana White, and now the two have a quote-unquote meeting where they have to talk about their relationship. Um, 
and what I found interesting, uh, Rashad Evans, I don't know if you saw him on uh, the I MMA that, Hour. Yes. Yeah, on um, Monday. And he was basically telling uh, Ariel Helwani that he was Tyron Woodley before Tyron was Tyron, basically, and saying how he struggled with his relationship with uh, Dana White and how this basically isn't going to play out well for Tyron, which is something that I don't um, disagree with him with, uh, on because obviously, you know, you can't, you can't argue, you can't win an argument with your boss. I've tried it. Sometimes I want to do it yeah, now. We you all tried it. Man, you never win that that argument. And yeah, was, uh, Raphael, go ahead. Before you hit on this point, we need we need to make a one. We we need this, we need to bring it full circle. Rashad was Tyron Woodley before Tyron Woodley, correct? Yep. Well, Tito Ortiz was Rashad Evans. There you go. Before. Well, so before it's, that. It's, this is this is we and Tito's are t- t- late in his career. They gave him the most toughest, difficult matchups and kept him on this losing streak and kept murdering, assassinating his character all throughout MMA. So it's like, this is a trend we have seen with him. This isn't just brand new. This isn't just Tyron. It's all minorities, but the UFC can be, the UFC is the king of petty. Let's not forget that. Yeah, definitely. He 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 was definitely in that um, position a long, long, I mean, and hell, if you want to really get get about it, Frank Shamrock was Tito before Tito was Tito. So, like, yeah. it, it just keeps going back and back and back and forth. Um, so, as we continue going with that, uh, we're at a point now where Tyron can basically... He's in a he's in a struggle point now because obviously you know the the fans are turning on him every single day. I don't know if you ever look at his mentions on Instagram or uh, Twitter. They're hard, they're out of control. Wish I did. And, Wish I did. I mean, like they're out of control, and I I struggle with the animosity that's sent towards him because he's doing what is in his best interest. And Tyron Willie is not a bad guy. He does community service. I mean, he's been doing community service in in all in urban and impoverished communities throughout Missouri, even before he became a champion. He's creating opportunities for himself outside of the cage, you know, getting booked on Fox to uh, be a co-host on Fox, getting into um, the uh, Straight Outta Compton movie. I think he's in another movie coming up. I mean, it's, it's he's creating opportunities for himself that other guys aren't who complain about not being promoted well. But yet, he's finding himself in a position where he's not going to win this argument at any shape, shape and form. So let's, let's start there. Um, if you were in Tyron's ear, what would you say to him as a, as a confidant and like a, 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 a peer, how, how would you coach him through this, this situation? Yeah. The biggest thing I, I mean, Tyron doesn't seem like he seems like the kind of guy who's going to do what he wants to do. I would just, I would just lay out all the options. If I'm his friend, I mean, I, there's been fighters who've asked my opinion on stuff, and I'll just lay out all the options. I always say the same thing. I don't have to live with the consequences of your decisions. I might, it might suck for me to watch you go through it. It might suck for me to hear you go through it. It might suck for me to see and hear what people say about you. But my, my money, my lifestyle, my, my family is not going to be impacted by it. Yours is going to be directly impacted by it. So whatever I say, you have to take into consideration that you're the one who has to live this life. So I lay out the fact that there's been a trend in the UFC about guys who kind of push back against Dana White, or even the UFC, if you want to call it, just and make them a faceless entity. It has not gone very well for all of them. I mean, Rashad Evans, his career fell off a, a map, and yeah, he's, he's got some speaking opportunities and things on Fox, but his career as a fighter got a lot more difficult when he started trying to argue with Dana. 
Same thing with Tito. Same thing with Frank Shamrock. Same thing with Maury Smith. There's always been some phase where somebody's been phased out or put through the ringer as a result of going against the uh, against the establishment. Now, if you want to be honest, you you should be you should have the right to be honest. You have the right to be honest. You have the right to bring attention to this. You have the right to speak your mind on it. But it's the same thing as anything in society, whether it's you working for your kids, you working for your race, you working for your sex, you working for your social group. The fact of the matter is, the people people who make the biggest sacrifice don't always reap the benefits of that sacrifice. Tyron can keep talking about it. And I think it's very good that he talks about it, and it's probably going to help somebody. Unfortunately for him, it will probably not benefit Tyron, not the way it should. It's going to benefit somebody two years down the line or the next generation of fighters who's going to see this and maybe do, do something different or maybe have some attention drawn to the fact that they're being overlooked. It's the same thing with, uh, with minority actors. Sometimes somebody had to do the slave roles and the butler roles before you got to the point where you're directing the movie, before you became a star in the movie, before you become an action hero. Somebody had to do that initial role and take that hit and be made made fun of by black cinema and black people for doing a demeaning role for you to work your way all the way to the point where now you have a heroic role or a historical figure role or a you know award-winning role somebody has to take the hit somebody has to fall on the cross jump on the bomb whatever you want to call it so that somebody a couple steps down the line gets to step over that and move up to a higher level and that's how i feel with tyron he's doing something important he makes valid points even though i I sometimes play devil's advocate. I'm just doing that out of intellectually honest when I make that argument. But I understand what he's saying. I understand what he's doing. But anytime there's a movement, the people in the movement, not everybody wins. Not everybody gets the recognition. Usually it's somebody else further down the line. So if he's doing this to really make a change and not just a change for himself, then he's going to help somebody down the line. Some young fighter, some young person is going to benefit from what the stand he's taking and the points he's making. But if he's doing this for himself, more than likely, outside of getting paid to fight a money fight, he will not reap the benefits from that. And if he's okay with that, fine. If he's not okay with it, then he might, at this point, I don't even know that playing ball is going to help him. He's kind of got the fans against him, and I don't know if there's anything he's going to do that's going to change it. But if he's going to keep talking like this, he has to understand he's doing it for someone else. It's not going to really benefit him past a certain point at this at this stage. I'm not going to disagree. Well, I'm not going to agree with you there because... Um... I think that no matter what happens, he this this will be a continued trend, especially at, especially with Dana White in the position that he's in and being so willing to belittle his fighters and some of his champions as well in the public eye. As long as he's there and he's willing to do that, this will never change. And what I mean by that is because this should have been a conversation that could have been behind closed doors. The same thing with the issues with... Uh, Demetrius Johnson. This could have been something that is managed behind closed doors. Tyron Woodley is making clear points when he's bringing up the way the UFC manages some fighters and compared to how they manage manage and promote some others. He's making clear points that can't really even be debated. But what I struggle with is the fact that we see a trend here with the way that Dana White is willing to talk about and deal with minority fighters. I mean, I'm just going to be real with it. I, I tweeted I, I tweeted it out uh, the other day when this first came up. Jason High, Anthony Johnson, Paul Daly, Rashad Evans, John Jones. When he talked about Phil Davis and his fights, um, Tyron Woolley, Demetrius Johnson. Like, he consistently has the most vitriol for 
African-American fighters and he, I don't want to use the word punishes them most harshly, but he drops the hammer on them when it's time to drop the hammer. Paul Daly hit Josh Koscheck after their fight at UFC 113. I think he hit him one time, and then the ref stepped in between him. Paul Daly has never been mentioned in, 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 in the UFC since. Jermaine Deronimi hit Holly Holm two times after the bell rang in two separate rounds, and she didn't even get a, a slap on the wrist. I mean, we see so many different examples. Anthony Johnson, he got cut after the fight with Vitor Belfort because of his weight issues. He was eventually brought back because he became such a force at light heavyweight. But how many guys in the UFC and, and women have we seen have Johnny ridiculous Hendricks. weight weight issues? Johnny Hendricks, Kelvin Castello. How many people have we seen with serious weight issues that get opportunity after opportunity after opportunity after opportunity? We have um, Demetrius Johnson, one of the probably one of the pound for pound greatest fighters of all time. And look at how uh, Dana White is willing to belittle him and how he treats that whole. How he treats him as a as a champion in regard to how he treats some of the other fighters who some who aren't even champions on the roster. This is a trend that we can and we continue seeing. Someone brought up, someone tried to argue my point, and they brought up, well, what about Tito or what about Frank Shamrock or or what about uh, how he got into it with with Kotor uh, back in the day? I'm like, yo, those are great points, but. Well, and at the end, Frank are minority still though. That too. And at the end of the day, they all came back and they all got what they want, except for Frank. Frank didn't come back. But Randy Couture, when he decided to come back, he came back to open arms and he got what he and he got what he wanted. He got the belt back. He got it. He he got his status back. He got everything back. No problem. Same thing with uh, Tito. So you can't really compare it in a, in a sense because the way these athletes are being treated in my opinion it just it there's there's a trend here and it's funny because someone else compared it to the way donald trump is is ready and willing to bash african-american celebrities that speak out about him but he doesn't do that when it's a white celebrity it's total it's it's a it's a fair game to compare the two because dana white does something very similar when he's willing to stand in the gap and accost tyron woolley the way he does um almost on a monthly basis it seems like now you make you make a good point, but there's a, there's two points I'm gonna make. The first point I'm gonna make is strictly on a business sense, and I, and I've said this before, and people always get on me, but it's plain and simple. You can't say certain things about certain people because their fan base spends so much money, their fan base is so powerful. If you come after that person, it will actually hit you in pay per views, and sales, and 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 the ratings. Tyron Woodley, if and I, I everybody can argue this with me as much as they want. If he really had, if he had half of Floyd Mayweather's influence over the black community as far as popularity, Dana White wouldn't come out of his mouth to say that because Tyron Woodley would put be putting dents in his ratings and in his pay per view. It would be literally putting dents dents in in the actual sales. He couldn't come after him like that. He couldn't say these sort of things because he would not. Ju- he would he would have a, a huge segment of black people, which also means eventually. He'd probably be going over to the into the the crossover, and then he'd get that attention. These other people have these very vocal fan bases who spend their money. Demetrius Johnson, I don't think he should be talked to like that. I think I find it very disrespectful. But when I look at it from the business sense, all those gamers and people who are on Demetrius' side, they're not out filling up stadiums. They're not out spending all this money. If they if their money, their actual money talked, 
Dana would shut the fuck up because he shuts the fuck up when money comes down to it. He wants to say shit about Conor McGregor. He knows he has to tread carefully because he's going to be fucking with his money. He wanted, I'm sure Ronda Rousey pissed him the fuck off for doing some shit. But you, you, you get on Ronda's side, then it's the whole, you're attacking her, she has fans, the women, you're harassing this woman. There's, there's, just, there's a high financial pe- price to pay for crossing those people. Just like some of, the, some of these white celebrities, they're, like, their fans are fanatics. That's why you have acts and actresses and, and music acts that haven't had hits in years still making millions and millions of dollars because they are still popular because their fans will still pay to see them five times in a row. Go to every single stand-up comedy. Go to every single. Go to five concerts in a row. Travel from state to state, city to city. Go see them. The people who are the fans of Tyrone Woodley and the fans of the lesser-known fighters, they are not willing to travel countries. They are not willing to travel states. They are not willing to spend their last hard-earned dollar to defend or to support this guy. So Dana has the freedom to take shots because there's no one who's going to punch him in the mouth financially. And secondly, my stance still stands. I still stand on this. I think they should speak out. I think the point, you, you, the trend you're noticing, it's right. I can't even argue that. But like I said before, the fact of the matter is, in every single phase, business, like, you know, we're in podcasting, we're minorities. Somebody had to get treated like crap, have their, minor, have their podcast stepped all over for us to get, for enough black people to get a fan base and develop podcasts to where more blacks got into podcasting. In business, somebody had to get trampled for they get to this point in war and society and slavery and social issues somebody has to take the hit not everybody wins everybody might win later but the people at the front often aren't the ones winning so tyrone can have this conversation i just don't know that it works out the way he wants in his time frame i figure it's going to be somebody else down the line who really benefits from this conversation these points being brought up i don't think tyrone's going to get the huge paydays and the love from the fans that he should muhammad ali didn't get it when he was talking the truth he didn't get it till he was brain damaged. He couldn't fight fight as well as he used to. Nobody ever loves you on the front when you're saying controversial stuff. It's always on the end when you're broken down and you're on the, your way out and other people are reaping the benefits for it. From NBA, NFL, podcasting, business, acting, somebody took the hit early and it slow, things slowly changed. We had these conversations and it, it hit an upswing. I just don't think Tyrone Woolley is going to be the guy who's on the upswing with it. I don't think Demetrius Johnson is either. They're a little bit later in their careers. There's going to be someone else who benefits from this. And what's interesting is you kind of said, you know, someone has to be willing to stand in the gap and, and put themselves in danger. Look at what Leslie Smith is doing with raising up the um, the fighters union conversation again. And she's doing it in the right way. I don't know if you've read the pieces or kind of caught up on that story, but this is this is something worth watching where it's not like a big grandiose, we're going to come up and spit in the UFC's face because we're the fighters type of deal. It's like, no, we want to have a seat at the table. We want to have a voice in the conversation as the UFC begins to negotiate billions of dollars worth of, worth of deals in in television. And as I heard everybody talking about this, something interesting came to mind and it harkens back to what we hear or the conversation that's going on in the African-American community about the women who are willing to stand up and take the risk first. And here you have Leslie Smith, who's been involved in a lot of these conversations over the uh, years, and she's doing it again, standing in a gap, being first, saying, hey, we're going to stand up and and we want some type of uh, say in the matter, and I, I mean, from that standpoint, you gotta respect it. Like, you gotta respect the fact that she's putting herself out there again. Because uh, when I say because she could be cut tomorrow and nobody would care. I do respect her because 
and this, and, and I, I go on these Twitter rants all the time, and most people don't see them, but everybody, fighters included, this applies to fighters, but it applies to everybody. Everybody says, well, this person doesn't, women aren't getting enough chances in businesses. They're not getting paid enough, but nobody wants to sacrifice their salary. Women should get this position, but nobody wants to give it their position. Women should get this opportunity, blacks should get this opportunity, whoever should get whatever opportunity, but nobody wants to give it up. Me personally, I have turned down promotions to some woman or somebody else to get a promotion. I've turned down writing opportunities paid for. I've turned down website opportunities paid for. So somebody else who is not a male or is not my race or somebody else in my race who maybe isn't getting opportunities can get one. I've like literally cut my own throat financially in certain instances doing this. So I respect it because I've done it. Everybody keeps talking about it needs to be done. But in the case of the fighters, how many fighters are willing to hold up their contract negotiations to make sure the other fighters are taken care of? They don't. They only care when it affects them. Jose Aldo was talking a lot about money, money, money. Treat the fighters better. Once they renegotiated his contract, Jose Aldo shut the fuck up. Donald Cerrone was complaining too. Until they renegotiated his contract, then he shut the fuck up. That's how it always works. Everybody talks about it. When, they, when they're trying to make their point, they bring everybody into it. It's like, if I'm going to get in a fight, I'm going to bring you and Michael into it because I don't want to fight by myself. But as soon as I'm out of it, I'm like, whoa, whoa, I'm out. That's between you, Mike. Raphael, Mike, that's y'all's problem. I'm out of this now. They, they apologize to me, so y'all got to deal with it. They bring everybody in to get that support and get that fan base and get people, see Jose speaking out for us, Donald speaking out for us. And then as soon as they get their money, they dead silent. They ain't got nothing to say. You don't hear money from Jose anymore. You don't hear money from Donald anymore. And that's what most of those guys are doing. Leslie Smith is actually acting like a professional adult. And this is no slight against certain fighters, but... A lot of times I talk to fighters, the argument always devolves into, I could kick your ass. That's great, but that's not how things work in the real world. You have to have a business plan, you have to have a model, and you have to be willing to sacrifice yourself, your time, your money, and your financial well-being to get things done. But nobody wants to do that. As I said before in the case of Roddy, uh, Tyrone Woodley, everybody wants to be the winner. That's not how this works at this, this stage. Some people are just going to have to ruin their careers, retire from mixed martial arts, get real jobs, not be on TV, and sacrifice potential title reigns so that other people down the line can benefit. But nobody wants to do that. They just want to complain. And I applaud Leslie Smith because unlike most of those people who keep saying, well, rich people should do this with their money. What are you doing with your money? Well, I don't have enough money to help. Yeah, you do. You just don't want to spend it. You'd rather tell a rich person how to spend their money. Well, that woman should get paid more. Why don't you give some of your salary? Well, I got kids. Yeah, me too. I, I, I have kids too. I have four of them. I sacrificed my salary for somebody. I gave a position so somebody else could have a position. Everybody talks about it, but nobody ever wants to take the hit. And the people who talk the loudest are the people who are the least likely to take the hit. So I respect her a lot because she's willing to take a risk with her career and her finances and her dream so that other people will benefit. Not so she can benefit, so other people can benefit. She's not even, I don't even think she's looking after herself. She's thinking about the other people who are getting shortchanged by this. And it'll be interesting to see what happens um, in the future if she can make it uh, if she can make it work if she gets and there's someone else that's working with the two I can't remember her name off the top of my head but it'll I be interesting selfish. I don't know about that yeah that's the thing like, that's the whole conversation point is she going to be able to make it work because it has such an important benefit to everyone around that it just has to be it has to be a conversation point but you know we'll be talking about this and we'll be keeping a close eye on this covering it in, in the future because it's just something that I think is worth the conversation point and it's worth the uh, coverage. Yeah. So, a prop tip of the head cap to Leslie. She's, I know, know we all consider fighters to be very brave, but what she's doing is actually legitimately very brave. 
It definitely is. I, I agree with you on that wholeheartedly. Let's look back to UFC 221, where we had Yoel Romero defeat Luke Rockhold, but he didn't get the benefits of the win because he's not the interim champion because of his weight issues. So, yeah, you know, you've been pretty adamant about Rockhold and um, where he is on the feet. And again, you know, that's exactly what we saw here. Uh, Rock, uh, Romero threw a double jab, hits him with a massive overhand, drops him, and then basically finishes him off from the seated position up, up against the cage. What did you see here from this fight? And were you, I mean, I'm not, I'm not even going to ask you were you surprised with how it ended because you, you're, you weren't. I'm sure you called this at some point in time. What were you? What were your thoughts watching this main event go down? I, I was really gonna predict it, but somebody asked me on Twitter. And I was like, "Have you not seen everything I tweeted? Do you not listen to the show? Almost every episode, I'm going in on Rockhold. I like him, but I'm not lying for anybody. And I know people who train with him, and they're like, "Oh, you don't know Rockhold? Rockhold's got the new tricks up his sleeve." I was like, "I don't care. Nothing he's gonna do is gonna impress me because the minute you put pressure on him, he will crack every time." I have this new thing that I have when I talk to fighters. Because with a fighter, you can add new technique. On the ground, on the feet, you can add new technique. You can work on someone's jab. You can add, you can add a high kick. You can add a, a body kick from southpaw. You can add a lead leg kick or a right hook or a counter, leg, counter hook or a pull counter. On the ground, a guard, transition to arm bar, transition to leg lock, angle. You can add all sorts of things. You can fix technical holes. But one thing that is really hard to fix, that is almost impossible to fix, is the same thing that's impossible to fix in real life fixing someone's character. So you do not attack the technique. You don't attack the strategy. You attack the person's character. Luke Rockhold's character is if he, he's like Anthony Pettis. If he is in control where you're scared of his kicks, you're scared of his athleticism, you're scared of his size, because he is big for middleweight. He was towering over Romero. If you're scared of those things and you give him respect, he will light you up with kicks, he will look like he can box, he'll beat you up, he'll throw you down to submit you, or he'll just knock you out on the feet because he's got enough skills to do that. When you give him the respect, he needs to give the space to work. Same thing with Anthony Pettis. When you do not respect him, when you're willing to play tight defense, you're willing to put some pressure on him, you're willing to take some chance, you're willing to take a little bit of abuse so you can get off offensively, he will resort, he will revert to what he always does, which is backing straight up in the cage, getting stuck up on, stuck on the cage with his chin high in the air, or ducking and leaning over in the shot, and he will get beat up and finished. He got finished essentially the same combination that Michael Bisping got him with over two years ago. And he got finished against the cage when he fought David Branch. He got pushed up against the cage and got lit up in the first round. Against Romero, he got pushed up against the cage and lit up in the second round. He, he, his offensive boxing got better. His strategy was a little bit more controlled aggression. He had a game plan. He was systematically attacking Romero. He trying to extend the round so he, he could get him tired and then drown him late. But the fact of the matter is, the minute Romero put consistent pressure on him, he reverted to the old Luke Rockhold because he can't get away from that. It doesn't. He's been he's developed that approach and that style and those habits for years. And the worst part about it is, he's been successful using crappy boxing, crappy defensive footwork, and an average and best kickboxing. He's gotten by. He's won two championships in two different organizations using that. So those habits are ingrained because it's always worked for him. So all you have to do is put him in the position, make him feel like the fight's going a certain way, and automatically he goes right back to what he always does. And that's all that happened. Romero stood in front, he took his shot, he took some kicks, started checking him, took the kicks away, was rolling with the shot, countering, Luke would jab, he jab back, Luke would try to throw a kick, he throw a kick back, 
to make Luke know that, hey, I've taken your full measure. I feel I can take it. I'm going to put some pressure on you. I'm going to return everything you give to me back with a strike or with pressure. And then in the second round he came out and goes, let me see what he does when I put the heat on him. Ran right back into the cage and got beat up for like 30 seconds. And then he, then his, when he gave him space, Luke started coming back on, getting his distance his time, he started putting shots together, but not as dominant as he did in the first round. And in the second round, he put the pressure on him, started jabbing with him, started coming in on him, forced him back to the cage, landed the, landed the big shot, then landed another one, fight was over. In the same way Luke Rockhold always loses fight. When a guy does not respect his athleticism, his size, and his striking ability, and pressures him, he comes right at him and returns fire. He lost that way against Belford, he lost that way against Bisping, and now he has lost that way against Romero, and he almost got lost that way against David Brandt. I mean, the book's already, already written on him. You just have to put him in the right position. And until he shows you that he can repeatedly survive that position, you just keep putting him into it, and eventually he's going to fold. That's all you have to do, and that's all Romero did. Romero didn't do anything fancy. He just walked him down. And that's funny that you mentioned that because in Luke Thomas, when he was reviewing the fight, that's something that he brought up because Romero continuously pushed uh, Rockhold behind the, the, the black lines right in front of the uh, cage. So, yeah, that's exactly what occurred there. And he eliminated that space to allow Rockhold to be able to move out of the way of that power shot. Because if you notice in the first round, the first and second round, he was throwing that power shot and it was coming close. It kept coming close and coming close. Backing him up into the cage allowed him to cut off that space to finish him how we saw yeah, I'm going to say one more thing. This is something that, if you've been in enough MMA gyms, and I've been to a lot, and I, I know I sound like Jimmy Smith because he always says, I learned this in sparring, this is my experience, so apologize to Jimmy Smith, great, anal great analysis, analysis and announcer, but in boxing, if you train boxing or you spar with boxers, fought boxing, whatever, boxers have a certain thing called a feel-out round, where they come out, they see what's in front of them, they might give a round away, they might give two rounds away to get their feel, to fight figure out what you're doing, how fast you are, how quick you are, what the distance is, and then I make an adjustment and then that's your ass. Floyd Mayweather did it against Conor McGregor in boxing. Robbie Lawler, a boxing heavy fighter, does it in almost every fight he does. He'll, he'll come out, he'll kind of give you a couple rounds, take your full measure, make sure you can handle the power, the technique, and then he starts turning it on. He starts doing the two minute drill that the New England Patriots do. That's what he does. Boxers do this often. If you spar somebody who boxes in mixed martial arts, you spar them in mixed martial arts sparring or kickboxing sparring, you'll notice they're feeling you out. I sparred a lot of boxers, so when I spar with somebody, first thing I'm doing is feeling out how do they react to this? How do they, what do they do to this? What do they do when they get me cornered? What do they do when I'm putting pressure on them? And then you make an adjustment in the second round. Most mixed martial arts people don't do this. Luke Rockhold was doing the same thing in round one that he did in round two and in round three. There was no adjustment. He had one game plan, there was no plan A, there was no A1, there was no plan B, there was no plan C. He had this, and all Romero had to do was make one adjustment, and it was Luke Rockhold's ass, because his game on the feet is so incredibly shallow. No offense to you, Luke. I like you as a person, but it's very shallow. There's no variation to it. He came in with a game plan, he added some new tricks, but there was no layering to it. That jab was the most predictable jab I have ever seen in my life. The footwork was as predictable, the combinations were predictable, everything he was doing. After the, you seen it in the first two minutes of the first round, you knew what he's doing the rest of the fight. Romero made an adjustment. Luke had nothing for that adjustment. And once the adjustment was made, it was over for him because he, he didn't feel him out. He came out right away and showed all his cards, showed everything he had in the first round. And so then Romero just had to figure out how do I shut it down and how do I get to this fool? 
Bronkhold had nothing else. And most mixed martial artists do not have a plan B because they train from a position of, I'm better than him everywhere. They keep saying that, and even guys I've, taught, I've worked with say that, and I'm like, that's not true. There's no way you're better than him everywhere. At least give him some respect so you can train in an appropriate way of what you're trying to take away and what he's going to go to next. But if you train from a position of, I can handle anything he throws at me, then why would you train your counters in, in a crisp manner? Why would you train your defense effectively? If nothing he can do would hurt you, if you really believe that, how hard are you going to train and push yourself if you don't believe he can do anything to you? You're not. You're going to leave gaps. You're going to make mistakes. You will not layer your approach. You will not have a backup plan. You will not have situational awareness. And then you get in the fight and realize, oh, I can't take his power. Well, I don't have a backup plan. I'm just going to keep doing what I normally do. And that won't work against any fighter with any sort of sense. And it didn't work against Romero, who is one of the highest IQ fighters in mixed martial arts today. He felt him out. He put some pressure on, put him in a position to see what he would do. Once he found out what he would do, it was easy work from that point on. He was just cruising, cruising until I wait to the right moment and lower the boom on this dude. It, it, it was, it was, it makes me question Henry Hoof's caliber of coaching that all his fighters are so summarily outclassed, outworked, and outfought on the feet. Michael Johnson, Anthony Johnson, Vulcan, and now Luke Rothhold. Come on, man. Like, I know the trainer can only do so much, but if you're a top-notch trainer, your guys are getting ice like this, I have to wonder about how top-notch you are. So if you were the point of contact for um, Yoel Romero, what would you do with him next? Do you think he deserves the, the title uh, rematch against Robert Whitaker because they just fought, or would you go with Chris Weidman? I would not go with Chris Weidman if you put a gun in my mouth and told me you're going to kill me in front of my children. I'm not doing it. Chris Wyman does not deserve a title shot. He just beat a blown-up welterweight who put him on his ass in the first round. He has lost three fights in a row. Winning one fight doesn't get you a title shot. Romero should get the title. If anybody should get it, it should be Romero because he's beaten almost... The only, only person who's beaten more people at middle, middleweight is the champion, Robert Whitaker. He's beaten everybody else in division who's got any sort of name, who's got any sort of run. Jacare, Brunson, who else did he beat? Tim Kennedy... He beat Luke Rockhold. Um, I'm missing somebody here. But he, he's beaten all he's beaten like from ten to like three in the division. There's nobody else who's got even close to the record he has and has been as impressive as he has in the division in in winning the fight. So I don't see how else you can put anybody else in there except for him. And the fight with Whitaker was a good fight. It's one of the better fights of the year. Now I don't think he's gonna win it. I don't think he's gonna win it, but he deserves it. Who else I mean, think of the fights of Weidman. You want to talk about a sham promotion. Weidman does not only, not only is he going to lose, he can't sell either. Weidman is good against guys 35. You know what? He's not even good against old guys now because Romero knocked Weidman out too. So, like, it just, it shouldn't be Weidman. I mean, no offense to him. He's a great fighter. He was a great fighter. If he's not beating up on old guys or blowing up welterweights, he's not very effective. Every time he's faced a world-class athlete and a world-class fighter, he has gotten summarily smoked. I can go down a list, but I'm not doing that to Chris because he's a good guy. And sorry, it's just the truth. This isn't. It might sound mean, but this is the truth. I mean, I'm not gonna um, disagree with you, man. You, you... And this, this isn't on Raphael. Raphael is a much more professional and calm person than I am. Send your complaints to Black Jordan Breen. I will take them all because there's nothing you can. I'm talking facts. It's not my job to protect feelings. It's my job to state facts. 
So what are your thoughts about the well actually no I'm not even gonna go down that that rabbit hole right now but um I definitely see where you stand where this let's let's look at the co-main event where Mark Hunt looked like he had Curtis Blades out out on his way out of the cage but somehow he was able to pull it out and Blades won the bout uh via unanimous decision. What are some what are your thoughts on um that matchup? Blades has summarily taken the best shots from Francis Ngannou and Mark Hunt. That dude's chin is legit. He's actually improved. He's really improved. When he got hurt, he could have gotten scared and started where, you know, you start standing out too far and diving in on takedowns and rushing in. And that's what Mark Hunt wants. He wants you rushing in. He wants you scared. So he, when you reach, he can counter you. He can chop you down. He can counter you. Blades was willing to come right at Hunt, sit down on a shot, and risk being knocked out by 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 giving Hunt the opportunity to open up and counter him big or lead big, and that's when he got the takedowns. The only way those takedowns were going to work is if he got Mark Hunt to commit to his strikes. If Mark Hunt's hits are out and he's jabbing and he's flicking out leg kicks and he's flicking out little punches, Mark Hunt hits so hard that he can knock you out with a, with a, with a slap if he wants. He doesn't have to put much on his shots to put people away. But the only way you can draw him into the point where you can get a good hold on him and get him down is by sitting down on your punches and risking the fact that you're going to throw a jab, or you're going to throw a feint, and he's going to throw something back. And if he lands, it's nights out. Fight's over for you. You're taking that risk so that you, he can overextend, you can get to his hips, you can get that initial takedown and put that work in early to start wearing him out, chipping him up so that later on you can get another takedown and another takedown. You have to get that initial one and you have to be able to do damage early in that fight. And, and Blades was able to do that. He fought a very disciplined fight. He showed a lot of heart. And he showed a lot of courage because a lot of guys, when they get rocked early, you saw what happened to Ronda got rocked early. She couldn't get to the clinch she wanted against Nunes. She couldn't get into against home. We've seen countless fighters who are good grapplers get hurt early, and all of a sudden they're just flailing around getting beat up. He was disciplined. He took the chance. He got the takedown. And when he got the takedown, he didn't lay there for control. He got to work on Mark Hunt, knowing that Mark Hunt would probably get back to his feet, but he needed to chip him up enough that he could get him back down and score these points and win these rounds instead of just fighting for control and hoping to God that Mark Hunt wouldn't find a way back to his feet. That was an excellent performance for him. He's improved immensely. He's got a lot of athletic talent. And if I'm correct, he's got one more fight in the UFC, and the UFC can't afford to lose him. They cannot. They cannot afford to lose him. And Bellator must be licking their chops right now because they need a young, active heavyweight, and Blades looks like he might be the, the real thing. So I, with the way the heavyweight division is kind of like filtered out, Right now, with um, us waiting on the super fight between Stipe and DC, what would you do next with uh, what would you do next with with Blaze? Where where would you put him? Um, if I if I'm with Blades, it, I don't know how the UFC is going to play it. They might give him somebody tough if he doesn't resign a contract with them before, because that's what they usually do. If you don't resign, we're going to give you the toughest fight possible and hope they knock you off. So that we don't have to pay you or if you win then we have to pay you because you know you knocked off a name so if i'm if i'm blades the best thing for him i don't know if i'd fight a verdum not saying he can't beat him i'd probably go for the winner of the tibura lewis fight because lewis actually has a lot of fan support behind him if he wins beating lewis even though it wouldn't be as big a fight in a sense of quality as beating a fabricio verdum as far as popularity and appeal beating beating a lewis carries more weight than beating Verdun because he's a popular guy. He's a popular guy. He's an interesting guy. It'll draw more eyes. Now, if Tybura wins, then yeah, you might as well go for Verdun because you beat him and you're basically, you basically signed 
you basically put yourself in a position where they're going to have to pay you whatever you want. Or if you beat Verdum, then you're coming off a win over one of the best heavyweights of all time who's on a winning streak, and Bellator is going to have to pay you huge money to get you. But it, it all just depends on how, if, if Lewis wins the fight, if Lewis wins the fight, I'd probably go for him. It's an easier fight. Lewis is a little bit one-dimensional, and his I still don't believe his cardio as well. That's probably the better fight for him. He could probably fight him the same way he just fought Hunt. Yeah, essentially, yeah. Th there you go. Great, great catch, yeah. Essentially, you do the same thing, and uh, that's it. Because we've seen Lewis struggle against guys who take him down. Even though he beat Roy Nelson, Roy Nelson could have arguably won that fight just on t repeatedly taking him down. And then when he fought, uh, I can't remember the Russian, I want to say it's a Russian guy's name, he was losing that fight until he got the late fight, the late knockout. And the biggest thing that impressed me about Blades was the amount of work he was putting in. Like, he was entire getting repeated takedowns, holding him down and striking. The pace he was keeping, Lewis can't keep up with that pace. And that actually is a good point that I don't hear, or I haven't heard a lot of people talk about, that he did keep up a very good pace from start to finish. So that is that is that is a very good point to bring up there, because he did, he especially for like... For being such a big man, round. yeah. For a big man, he definitely did um, keep up a very good, good, good pace uh, for that fight there. So let's see, let's see, let's see. Who else we got to talk about this week? We also have um, UFC Fight Night One Twenty Six is on Sunday. We also have a Bellator One Ninety Four card on Friday, I believe that is. So Donald Cerrone and Yancy Medeiros is the main event in um, at UFC Fight Night One Twenty Six. And what are some of your early thoughts on this card there? How would you look at this pairing of? I think they're fighting at welterweight. How would you look at this pairing here? It seems like they're trying to use. They're either they're going the route where. They're putting Donald Cerrone in a position where he's going to start, as they say in wrestling, putting over the talent. Like they're putting him against guys who have styles that have been known to pressure, known to trouble him. And if these guys beat him, then they can say, I beat Donald Cerrone and now I'm in that top elite fighters, even though Donald Cerrone is no longer an elite fighter. Um, at least by name, he's got enough value that it can springboard this guy because Medeiros is a long guy. He's kind of like a Nick Diaz, Nate Diaz. He hits harder. I, I don't know, Nate's a little bit better defensively and a better grappler, but he's very similar to Nate Diaz. He throws a high volume, he attacks the body, he hits hard, he talks a lot of, tra he talks a lot of trash, and he, he forces a high pace in his fights. So a high volume throwing, good boxer who hits hard and attacks the body. Those seem to be the things that always get Donald Cerrone beat, beat up repeatedly. And... Cerrone, when he first got to welterweight, he had made some adjustments. His footwork was a little bit cleaner and lighter. His punches were a little bit sharper, so he's getting maximum length and maximum snap on him. He was throwing cleaner punch-kick combinations, and he was really willing to mix it all up. Use the punches to set up the kicks, use the kicks to set up the punches, use the punches to set up the takedowns, and he did all that stuff to help keep guys from getting him up against the cage, pressuring him, or countering him heavily to the body. He didn't do that in his last fight, and that fight was recently. And Donald Cerrone, whether anybody's noticed it or not, has been declining physically. And he never had the best chin, he never took the best body shot, and he was never the most dynamic or defensively sound striker in the world. So there's a very good chance that if Medeiros can navigate the kicks and can actually fight with some discipline and walk through a little bit of fire, that he stops Donald Cerrone. It's really just a matter of what Cerrone has left. If Because Cerrone's got the experience, he's got the grappling to win this fight and win it going away. But the question is, when he gets some heat put on him, when the pressure comes, does he have an answer for it? Because in the last fight, he did not have any answers for it. 
And if he can't if he can't dissolve the pressure or get away from it, he is going to get overrun. He's going to get broken down, and he is going to get finished. Now, if he can get away from the pressure and start working his kicks and working that distance, and and get the takedown, it's going to be an easy fight for him. But I don't know if he's got the poise anymore, and I I really don't have any faith that he has the physical durability to take the shots if the shots start coming real really heavily on him. If he can, he'll win because he's a better skill fighter, better season fighter, more experienced quality fighter. If he can, if his chin's gone and his his poise is gone, then all that other stuff gives, goes right out the window and he's going to lose decisively. So if you had to make a pick, who would you go with in this main event? Um, man, Madero's just look, he's so easy to hit, man. I mean, Cowboy, the other Cowboy was lighting him up. The other Cowboy had that fight won and he just gave that away. Madero's is really, I'm just gonna, I'll, I'll say, I'll say I'll go with, I'll just you know what I'll go with the veteran. He's got more ways to win. He's got the better skill set. It, it's not a strong pick because I, I don't I just don't know how resilient he is to abuse at this point. And he's going to have to take abuse to win this fight. And I don't know if he can take it anymore. Like I don't know if he can. I know he wants to, but he's never been the toughest fighter in the first world. But he's got more skills, more ways to win. He should have the better camp. And he he's in my experience over the length of his career, he's been the better fighter. He should win this. Okay, good breakdown there, sir. Good breakdown. Let's keep it moving down this card. We got quite a bit to talk about. Where we also have Derek Lewis and Tabura fighting in the heavyweight co-main event. Who do you have in this bout, and how do you see it kind of playing out? Is Lewis really healthy? Because if if he has any sort of problems with his back, he's just going to end up getting outworked and beat up again. I mean, that's that's a great question. I mean, because Lewis, the people, the thing about Lewis is this is the problem I've had with Lewis. I don't dislike this dude. But he supposedly was a former boxer. But if you've ever watched him do MMA, he can't really box. He can't really wrestle. He's not really a good kickboxer. I mean, I'm not saying he can't kickbox. I'm not saying he couldn't beat me up. But once again, what is that proving? He's not a really good kickboxer. He's not a really good wrestler. He he might be the worst grappler in the in the heavyweight division, top or bottom position. His biggest thing is he's good at countering. He draws you in, and then he throws a huge strike. Because for his size, he's very explosive. He hits very hard. He's got a decent chin. And he's got good timing and good balance. So he draws you in, draws you in, and then he counters you big. And then he finishes you off. But in so many fights I've seen, he's been razor's edge close to being finished. Against Travis Brown. Travis Brown had that fight won. Against the uh, Russian guy, I can't think of his name. He he had that fight won going to fourth round. Roy Nelson, if he just would have thrown even mild ground and pound, would have beat Derek Lewis. He's been so close to losing in every single fight. He's been on that kind of edge, the razor's edge. And he just... For the most part, he's been able to win. But if he's not healthy and he can't move around or his back goes out and gives him a problem, he's not going to be able to beat Tibera. Tibera's holding his volume, it's being tough, it's imposing his will, it's throwing a lot of volume, it's wearing guys down. If Lewis is healthy, that should give Lewis every opportunity to land a big counter. Tibera is not very good defensively. He gets tired. He depends a lot on physicality and durability. Lewis is a big hitter. Lewis is probably one of the physically strongest guys in heavyweight division. And Lewis is a very physical fighter when he has to be. And he's tough. He's got heart. He will not quit. He will go down swinging. And he's got a good chin. Tabir is not a big hitter. He throws for volume, not power. Defensively, he's not responsible at all. Offensively, he is not particularly diverse. He's very predictable. He's not very slick. And he's not a big hitter either. He has to land a lot of shots to do the damage he wants to do. So if, if, if I look at everything in a vacuum and say Lewis is healthy, Lewis should be able to land counters 
and, 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 and essentially win a lopsided decision or put him away. The only caveat is Lewis isn't in the best shape or his back isn't there or something of that nature because if he can't pull the trigger on the counter consistently, because Tiberius got a good enough, a decent chance, he can take a couple shots. If he can't pull the count, pull the trigger on him, Tiberius is just going to outwork him over the length of the fight because Tiberius is another heavyweight who can keep a high pace. When he fought Verdum, it wasn't a particularly exciting fight, but it was a fight that had repeated and extended exchanges on the ground and on the feet. So he can keep a pace and he can fight a guy who can maintain a pace. So he's going to give Lewis all the chances he needs to land the shots he needs to, to knock him out. But if Lewis can't pull the trigger because he's not sharp or he's not healthy, then Tiberio just overrun him. If Lewis can pull the trigger and he is healthy, he should stop him. Okay, so that, that, that's some good analysis there, and I definitely appreciate that. Uh, let's look at last fight on this card that kind of jumped off the page to me was James Vick and Francisco Trinaldo. This is an important fight for these two guys at lightweight because it's an opportunity for them to continue pushing their way up the ladder at 155 because there aren't a lot of opportunities coming to guys at the bottom of the rungs there. So I'm interested in this fight because I feel like Vick is going to be the favorite. Uh, I haven't looked at, at the betting odds coming in so far, but I understand that he, he could be the favorite and because he has a strong camp behind him but um i don't want to sleep on francisco quite yet you don't want to talk about vic's camp you don't look at his camp too closely you'll find some really bad uh, yeah i'm not even not even not even touching that one but um i'm not sleeping on trinaldo in any in any shape or, or form because uh the, the guy's proven that he can get the job done what do you what do you think about when you see these two guys paired up against each other vic's biggest weapons are his length his work rate and his durability I don't think Vic's the most technical fighter. He's educated on the feet. He's very disciplined with a lot of controlled aggression. He places his shots very well. He puts a lot of pressure on you, and he's willing to take some to give some. He's not defensively irresponsible, but if you're going to throw volume, you have to be comfortable getting hit. That's just the rule. You want to throw a lot of punches? That's fine. Be prepared to take more than a few. Um, I don't think he's particularly defensively sound. I don't think he's the greatest athlete. I think he relies a lot on his, his offense, his length, and his durability, his lines of defense. And I really feel that if Trin he, he makes adjustments, but early on in fights, he often, he often gets hit. He often gets hit a lot. He often gets put in some bad positions, and then he makes an adjustment. I really think Trinaldo's best opportunity is to come out and put something on him really early and hopefully finish. Because if Vic's allowed to go rounds, he gets stronger as the fight goes on. And he makes adjustments. His corner is very good, and he is very good about making adjustments on the fly in the, within the round and definitely in between rounds. Chernaldo's got the athleticism advantage. He's probably the better all-round kickboxer, I think. He hits a little bit harder. The question I have is his gas tank and how he holds up when he's put under duress, like extreme duress, because Vic puts a lot of pressure on you. Even if you're beating him up, he's always trying to fight back. Even if you're taking him down, he's always fighting for position. So you don't have any rest, rest spots with Vic. So essentially, if you can't physically get your hands on him and do something, or you can't put your your chin your shin on his chin, is your fist on your, his chin and do severe damage, if not stop him, Vic basically dictates the terms of the fights and he'll break you down. So it's it's really up to Trinado to come out and really put something on Vic earlier to make him hesitant. Because if he lets Vic get going, once you let him get going, that's a wrap. I always go against Vic, so I'm probably not going to break my my trend now. But in going against him, I have gotten his last five fights wrong. I will, I don't see how he keeps winning because I, I, I can explain to you how he keeps winning. But when I see him fight, I don't see a fighter who should be, go, who should be winning 
this consistently. But he keep, he keeps finding ways to do it. And I explain how he does it, but when I see him fight, I just don't see it. But um, Toronto has as good a chance as any because he's got that kind of fight-ending power. And, and Vic makes a lot of mistakes, especially early. Throughout the fight, he makes mistakes, but he makes less mistakes each round. But especially early, you can get him. But once again, if you do not get him and he figures out your game plan, it's really a wrap because he will not get tired, he will not get scared, and he will not stop attacking you and making you work in every position on the ground, in the clinch, at range, in the pocket. He will attack you every single place. So if you can't hurt him and put him away, you your conditioning has to be faultless and your skill level has to be sublime. Trinaldo's a little bit more of an attribute fighter and I don't know that his chin or his cardio is good enough if he's forced to fight an entire three rounds. And against Vic, he will be forced to fight three rounds. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this fight because as I said, I think the winner is going to find themselves in a position where they can kind of, they can be vaulted up the uh, division and put other lightweights in a position where they have to fight them. The, the, the top of the lightweight division is really in a log jam right now. We have, on, on, I mean, clearly we have Connor as, as a champion. We have Tony and Khabib prepping the fight. And then we have the Dustin Poirier, Justin Gaethje fight coming up in April, I believe that is. Beyond that, a lot of the top contenders aren't facing anyone new. They aren't facing any of these guys pushing their way up up the ladder. I think this is an opportunity for Vic or Trinaldo to kind of make them make their presence known. I think more Vic than Trinaldo. I think even with this win, Trinaldo would have to get at least another one to get yeah. really in position. But but Vic's right there. I'm not going to disagree with you on that at all. So let's move over to Bellator 194 where we have another heavyweight Grand Prix fight between Roy Nelson and Matt Mitrione. Um, I mean... This heavyweight Grand Prix does not excite me at all. I don't give, I couldn't give to, couldn't care less about this, the shit. But they're trying these guys out there as um, attention grabbers because they have names from the their time in the UFC. What do you think about this fight here? And is it something? Is this like a priority for you to watch over this weekend? Uh, I'll probably watch it. I'm a Roy Nelson fan. Um, we'll just see how it goes. I mean, I try to support as many organizations as I can as far as watching him and stuff because the more organizations there are, the better opportunities there are for the fighters. When the UFC kind of of controlled the whole landscape, that actually hurt the fighters as far as their leverage and opportunities. Having multiple organizations only helps fighters. As a person who's trained fighters yourself, you know the more legitimate, qualified organizations there are, the more opportunities there are for your guys to get to the next level. Um, I'm, I'm interested in the fight a little bit. I'm concerned about Mitrion because... I know Roy Nelson isn't what he used to be, but the fact is he still hits hard, he still has a good chin, and now he seems to be using his wrestling a little bit. And in his two fights in Bellator, actually all three of his fights, if I'm not correct, Mitch Rione has gotten, like, almost KO'd in every single one of them. Yeah. Like, right off the bat, he's been hurt really bad or caught really early in a fight. And that's pretty much Roy Nelson's only chance, and as athletic as Mitch Rione is and as good as his all-round striking is, like, he can kick a little bit, he can punch a little bit, he can move, he's pretty light on his feet. I've never seen a guy just get hit by guys who were so much lesser caliber of fighters than him in my life. He almost got finished in his first fight in Bellator. That guy almost finished him. And then and when he fought Fedor, they knocked each other down. He just caught Fedor a little bit cleaner. Fedor lands a little bit better on him. It, or He doesn't recover as quick. Fedor gets that knockout win. So being that he's been so vulnerable, I don't see how he gets past a Roy Nelson. I mean, he should he should be able to outbox him and kick, out kickbox him and outwork him, but 
Mitch Allen's stand of defense is ter- is beyond terrible. He gets by on length and athleticism. He has not fixed one thing about himself defensively. As you watch all three of his fights in Bellator, it is clear that, that he has not fixed any, any of his defensive holes. So uh-huh. I think Warren Nelson should be able to exploit it and land a big shot. It's good in the short term for for Bellator because Nelson has fans. It'll give him that cheap that that cheap heat, I guess. It'll last for a little bit, and it's a talking point. Unfortunately, um, thinking long term, this once again might might uh, hurt the product. I think Stephanie Haynes did an article with uh, one of the Pitbull brothers, and they were saying how they felt like Bellator's numbers were a result of them taking that short short money. And in a sense, that's the same thing the UFC did. You took the short money with the big pop, not thinking that you're mortgaging your future, and now it's coming time for you to pay that mortgage, and you don't have the money. The same thing's kind of helping to hurt, happening to Bellator. Bellator hasn't ever reached the level that the UFC has has reached, so it hits them a little bit quicker, hits them a little bit harder. Yeah, um, I I would definitely agree with you on that breakdown there and it just doesn't really like it doesn't jump off the page to me it doesn't make me stop and want to show interest in fact the only thing on this card that really catches my eye is that heather hardy and Joel Tan fight just because what they're doing they're these two women are going to fight in the mma uh this weekend and then they're going to do a boxing match later on because this is where both women come from this is where their expertise really is in in, in the boxing space so i'm looking forward to that just to see how that that's presented to us in a, in a different fashion. It'll be one of the first. I think it'll be the first time that it's ever happened. So that's really I, I the only thing. That... Both of those girls. Well, uh, really because oh, because um, Heather Hardy, even though she is known in, in boxing circles, she wasn't some huge star in boxing circles. There's not a huge interest in women's women's boxing. There's not like not like there's women in mixed martial arts. But somehow she has managed to to market herself and brand herself and tell her story and share her story. This made her and I mean. She's had two fights in mixed martial arts, and she's probably a bigger star than the majority of the women in the UFC. And I wouldn't disagree with that at all. Her, but she's done a lot to make sure she is as available to interviews and shows and, and and hit every single outlet and told every bit of her story. And I'm not saying she did it to just sell herself, but told every bit of her story to make herself more relatable. I know more about her than I know about Amanda Nunes, and Amanda Nunes has been the champion for the past two years. And the only reason I know it is because Heather Hardy makes it a point to share and express these points. I'm not saying there's not some differences, but she is an example of what you do if you go out and hustle and you really expose yourself and you really expose who you are, how you are, and what you're trying to do. Because she's really gotten a foothold in mixed martial arts, and she's only one in one in, in her career as a fighter. And yet she's getting all this publicity, and you can tell me it's from boxing, but she's not a big star in boxing. So, And I will totally agree with you on that there, because um, she... And that's and this this is something that Bellator does well across the board. They do a good job of promoting their women. Um, you have uh, Lima Lay McFarland, and she competes in these EBI events, drawing a different type of fan. Uh, they have, yeah, they went out of their way to sign a bunch of really attractive women, which you know you can't really ignore that but they do a good job of creating opportunities for all of them rather than just creating an opportunity for a select few yeah but also you and, and once again you make an excellent point but the position bellator is in all these girls there's no there's no jockeying for position they're just taking any and every fight they can get so it's it's like the triple g thing gennady golovkin he wasn't a big star in America. So you know what he did? He fought anybody he could 
so he could keep on knocking people out, keep putting his craft out there so people he could develop a fan base. If you're a fighter, even if you're a very charming and funny fighter, the w way you make your name and showcase those other traits is by fighting. People can't get, won't get to know you anymore unless you're in the news and you're doing these, doing these things it takes. A lot of fighters sit on the sideline and they think they're getting leverage. You're not. You're losing leverage. The people actually fighting, people want to know what you did for me lately. Yeah, you knocked out the number two guy 18 months ago, but you ain't done nothing since. So even though this guy's half the fighter you are, I've seen him win six times in a row. So that's who I want to see get the title shot, even though you're the better fighter. I mean, I hate to say it like that, but it's the same thing for writers, same thing for you. If you don't put nothing out in, in 18 months, nobody wants to hear about the article you did 18 months ago. What did you do this week, Raphael? What did you do yeah, this week, I'm not going to disagree with you there at all. Um, some great breakdown there as well. And I'm looking forward to this fight because both of these ladies are they're doing something new and it's always good to see something different and something engaging in combat sports and like i said this is definitely something that is new that there really isn't an opportunity to to copy and, and emulate in any way shape or form because you don't have two athletes that can cross over in such a way yeah I, I hope i hope a lot of fighters take notes of what heavy hardy does and even though he's not fighting on the card i hope a lot of fighters take note of what aaron pico did i know he has a lot of buzz coming in but his main thing is he's fighting guys he shouldn't be fighting at this stage of his career. That's what's actually getting him the run he's getting. He had an early loss, but what did, do people do? Did they harp on it? No. He's fighting a guy much more experienced, much more qualified. And he's gone and followed up by fighting guys with 12 and 10 more fights than him. And, and he's, he's, doing, he's getting the respect and the attention the hard way. Just going out there and earning it. You can't talk your way into respect. Even Conor McGregor, he's talking now. But the way he got the respect, he got the title, he got the money was fighting. And then he started talking after he won fight. You can't talk your way into respect if you're a fighter. You have to fight your way into it. And then you do the stuff outside of it. And that's just a good, good thing for all of them to remember. I'm not a fighter, so it's easy for me to say that. But it's, it's from combat sports, that's just the way it goes. You're a basketball player. If you ain't playing basketball, we don't really care what you're saying. You're not playing football. Do we really care about Tom Brady? No. You have to be doing what you're there to do for you to get the opportunities to say and do what you want to do in other phases of your life. What else from this card stands out for, for you? Is there anything else you're looking forward to seeing? Not really, because a lot of the fights seem like they're kind of already predetermined. Like the, the Pitbull fight, that's kind of, I mean, it'll be, it should be good. It should have action, but, you know, is anybody thinking Pitbull's in a position to lose that fight? Not really. I mean, it's, once again, we've, we had to have an abbreviated form of this conversation. Bellator is just so shallow in their divisions. They don't have a lot of compelling matchups. They have three or four guys, and you can't have them fight each other all the time. So they don't have any compelling matchups. They're not interesting on a technical level. They're not really interesting on a strategical level. They might be fun to watch, but it's nothing that draws you in, and you have to see it. That's why they have to resort to getting these names, because none of these fights are really, if you really think about it, really evenly matched. You know, that's, that's the issue. The Vic, Trinaldo fight, evenly matched. This fight and that fight, evenly matched. Bellator, if it's not the women's division, the fights aren't really, really evenly matched. So it's hard to get excited about it. Even if it's a name, and none of their guys have a big enough name where you, they're just going to pull in ratings just because they're fighting whoever. And none of these fights have a history or enough of a buildup where you can, you can just buy into them automatically. So once again, that, that lack of depth is killing, is killing Bellator again. So they're going to be stuck doing rematches of fights over and over again because they don't have any other buddy they can put somebody in against who makes for a compelling matchup. Mm -hmm. I can definitely look at that there. So um, 
Let's talk about what you're working on this week, man. What do you have coming? This is a all-star weekend. It's not gonna. It's not a quiet week in mixed martial arts. There's quite a bit going on. But what do you have working on? Uh, what do you have going for yourself this week? And what are you working on, my friend? Um, I wrote a piece for Combat Press, and basically, it's talking about the decline. It's it's gonna be talking about the decline of the popularity of the UFC and MMA as a whole. And it's gonna be. It's kind of like an opinion piece, but it's kind of talking about how that impacts people like you and myself. Because they always talk about the organization. I touched on that article. We talk about the organization and we talk about the fighters, but there's another group of people who sacrifice their time and their money and and they don't, they're going to be hit by this too. The difference between us and the, organi- the organization and, and the fighters, these people rarely get paid. People like you and me, we don't get paid for the sacrifice we make. And we do good work and we make sacrifices. And there's other websites that do good work and make sacrifices. And they're just as committed, if not more, than the fighter. But they're not getting paid. And if if you if the MMA falls back to its median, there's gonna be less opportunities to establish a brand, to make money. Basically you're just doing it for the experience. To say I did it and to follow a sport you love. Financially, it's not a much reward. And I kind of touch on that and uh, touch on the the kind of decisions that people who cover mixed martial arts have to come to that people who cover traditional sports don't have to because traditional sports have such a big fan base you could be you could be like us and have a podcast and get 50,000 hits because it's, you're talking about the Panthers it's a little bit different because it's a niche sport and there's so much competition in mixed martial arts yeah you're definitely right there and then this is kind of I think Jonathan Snowden tweeted it out one time about how this is more about being a uh a passionate fan and you know you're doing a hobby as opposed to doing a job and that's kind of how i look at it it's something i do take seriously um just from a writing standpoint i cover so much across the gamut and i want to you know kind of build my brand that way but it is something that is definitely difficult to break into from a long-term monetary uh, you do it because you love it you do it because you want to put out a good product for other fans like yourself because as a fan you saw it and you're like these people aren't covering this they're not covering it well enough that's why i got into it i'm like the analysis sucks let me you know well you can do better why don't you do it okay i mean i'm doing it i'm basically doing it for fans and for the respect i get from coaches or fighters or people like you and michael who say your work has value if i'm if i'm talking about money i i wouldn't be doing this i'd be doing something else yeah (laughs) definitely that's not a slam to anybody that's just the reality of being a mixed martial arts journalist of any sort you're, there's like maybe 10% who make money and they did a, I think they did a, a, a little research piece a couple of years ago and it's like maybe 15% of people, 17% make money and everybody else is spending money to cover it and make these articles and review this tape and to cover these, these events live. So we're like fans, except fans who work and contribute to the sport we're a fan of. We spend as much money, if not more, we spend as much time, if not more, except we're working instead of just getting the pure enjoyment of being there and having a good time. Yeah, definitely agree with you there. So, man, what do you work um Anything else you're working on this week? Uh, I'm trying to work on a piece about Angela Hill, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I'm going to break down the good, bad, and ugly of her physical attributes, her mental attributes, and her fight game because she has a fight coming up next week versus Marina Moroz, if I'm not correct, and just give people a little bit of insight as to why she's had some struggles and uh, things to look for when you see her fight as far as things she does well and things that she does that gets her in trouble when she faces a certain caliber of an opponent. 
Yeah, she's someone else I want to see succeed. Um, I, I follow her very closely. She's actually from this area. Uh, she's someone I, I would definitely want to see succeed. Great character. She's, she's got a she, look. She can fight man, and a great character. She's a character and a half. And, you know, I, I wonder, you know, she would be a great case study for my stance on how the UFC picks and chooses who they decide to promote. Because if she were to break through to that upper echelon, she has the type of, she has the type of personality where it's like they couldn't, they could not. They could not not promote that woman. Yeah, no. I mean, who else comes out there dressed up as Sagat, dressed up as so many different characters that everyone that is a fan of this industry knows about? Like they, they there would be no way that they could hide her behind um, someone else. But you know, she would be I agree, a great. I agree with you, but she's got to stop. She's got to stop Buffalo Bill in it. She's oh, you're right. In the fight of the night, but she ain't won the fight of the night yet, and that's been the problem. She's got to get those. She she needs and she. She needs an important win under the UFC life. She, she puts some wins together, we can start talking. But her best win in the UFC is Ashley Yoder. Yep. That's not going to get it. No offense. Everybody else. And everybody else, she's fight like uber close, close fights uh, against, but she loses. I mean, even like the last fight, I was dead set that she was going to win that one. But I mean, she found a way not to. It's what, it's what I said about Fleece Harry. Fleece says, oh, it's unfair. And I point back to this, and I know it's not fair to do this, but believe. If you beat Paige Van Zandt on that Prime Network, Prime Fox card, it's a whole nother story. You don't have to go through this, but you lost the fight. You can tell me whatever reason. I know you're going through a rough time, but you lost, and that was the difference. You win that fight, it's a whole different world for her, but she didn't win it. And the world's over for Angela. She's a perfect character. She's got a look. She can fight. She's excited. She's interesting, but she hasn't been able to put it together in the UFC, and that's the only thing holding her back. you got to win. At some point, you can't be excited, you can't be close, you just have to win. And she has not done that yet. Yeah, definitely. Definitely agree with you that there. So um, with that in mind, we're, we're going to go ahead and close out the show. We had a pretty good conversation today. Um, scheduling Phil Murphy from ESPN probably later on this month. He was actually supposed to be on tonight, but I uh, slipped up and was unable to confirm uh, last minute. But, you know, we're, we're definitely um, doing some great work, man, and, and I appreciate having you on as always. Oh, hey, I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, you and Mike have uh, got me into writing. <laughs> You're like, well, it's like a drug. Hey, man, come on, just try a little bit. Try a little bit. You see if you like it. If you don't like it, you don't have to do it ever again. <laughs> Next thing I know, I'm like five, six, seven articles, and I'm on the podcast. It's been a great experience. You guys are great uh, people to work with, especially you. I work with you more than Mike, but great person to work with, and I consider you a friend, and I admire the work you do, and I admire the way you carry yourself and how honestly you speak on all sorts of issues, martial arts related or not. Thanks, man. I definitely appreciate it. So with that in mind, man, um, we'll be back next week, and I will uh, have a good week. Yeah, you too, sir. No problem.